Hello, hello. So good to see you. Some of you I haven't seen in a while. As I'm scrolling through the uh, pages here, uh, I can see more faces. Fantastic. I am so happy to see you. Um, <clears throat> hey, we have, uh, this is a wonderful, this is a wonderful weekend, right? This is the 4th of July. It's a little bit tempered by, hey, we're not having as many events as we've had in the past, right? That's all real. That's all present to some of us. Uh, but we are here right now. And what can happen so easily for us is if we carry something that has happened yesterday or that didn't happen yesterday that we wanted to happen, we can carry that into this present moment and it can darken us a little bit, right? And if it darkens us a little bit, then we don't experience this present moment quite the way it could be, right? And so then what will happen is we've had this gathering today and tomorrow you'll realize like, wow, that was a great moment that we had, but I wasn't fully present to it because I was still thinking about what happened the day before and it can have this effect ongoingly. Um, or maybe your thoughts are towards more the future and you're caught up in what's happening next that your mind is chasing this thing and it's difficult to be right here in this moment. So to live a joyful life, we follow what the psalmist says. The psalmist says, this is the day that the Lord has made. This, this is the day, not yesterday, not tomorrow. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, that's where that's where it's ha that's where the joy happens. It's in this present moment, and we build off of each present moment. And so right now, at exactly ten thirty eight my time, if you're from a different time zone, it might be nine thirty eight for you or some other time. But in this moment right here, right now, we are together. Virtually, yes, but we are together. So take a look at each other's faces in this moment right now and take a deep breath as you do so. <clears throat> See if you can tune out yesterday, tune out tomorrow, and tune in to this present moment and look at each other's faces and take in the gratitude that you can have for one another. And breathe that in. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. So that's it. That's the end of the service. Uh, have a great day. Kidding, 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 kidding. We're, uh, I, I didn't plan to say any of that, but look, we're going to get into Romans now and start focusing on the recap. This is the, this is the recap of all of Romans. So what I'd like you to do is grab your Bible, grab your virtual online or physical material paper ink Bible and begin with me. We're going to go through the entire book and you're going to go through it with me. This could be fun. This could be Really difficult, we'll see, but uh, open it to chapter one. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna kinda 
go through it very quickly, one through 16, and, uh, and give you sort of a thread. I, I've got a thread that I'm weaving through this. There's a number of different threads. I'm not presuming that this is the only one, that's for sure. But this is the one that comes to my mind and one that I find helpful for me and, um, and I think could be helpful for you as you think about what's happening right now in this world and in our lives. So what I wanna do is first, before we jump into chapter one and make our way to two, three, four, five, all the way to 16, I want to back up a bit and give you an overall theology that could be helpful. And that is a short one, very short, but I'm gonna give you the one that um, I believe Paul is deriving his theology from. So theology just means our thoughts about God. These are our organized system of thinking. This is our, our way of seeing and understanding who God is. That's the general idea of what theology means. Okay? So theology isn't just what's written in these books by scholars. It's our way of thinking about God. So in, um, in, in the life of Jesus, one of the things that stood out that really got Jesus into a, a whole lot of trouble you can always know when you get yourself into trouble, you're really hitting something that's near and dear to the heart of a lot of people. And Jesus, what he did was act as if he had full access to God and as if there was no separation between him and God. Now, why is this problematic? because the ancient Jews didn't believe that that was possible. They believed that the closest you could get were the priests who could actually enter into the temple, into the, the holy place, the holy of holies, and actually have conversation with God and then come back and speak to the people. The religious leaders, not the priests, but say Pharisees and Sadducees, both were a little, maybe a step down, but they were also way up there because they studied the scriptures and communicated that to the people. Okay, that's one. That's one thought I want to just sort of hang over here. The second one is they believed they were under the curse of God. The Jewish people did. Because in Deuteronomy 28, the blessings and cursings are listed there. And one of the curses, it's a significant one, it's that you will go into exile if you don't follow the law. And that's where they were, under Roman oppression. So they see themselves as cursed by God. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be cursed by God? Well, it means you don't have the favor. You're under oppression. You're separated from God. So can you now start to understand why when Jesus shows up, he has all this like apparent connection to God and acts as if he does. Doesn't act as if there's any difference, no separation. So he prays, he talks to God, and then he talks to the people as if he's a priest, as if he's heard from God. And so the priests are getting angry. The system's getting angry at him, right? But Jesus doesn't point to himself either. He acts like He's top dog in some sense, at least at least the way the priest thought of it. But the moment people try to worship him, what does he do? 
says, no, 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 don't worship me. And then when he heals somebody, what does he say? My magical power has made you well. Come worship me. No, he actually says, it's your faith. Right? Why is he doing that? Because you, what is he, what is he doing? He's modeling, I have access to God, unfettered access to God. And you do too. This is why it is subversive. It's a subversive message that threatens to overhaul, to overthrow the entire religious and economic system of the first century. Now do you know why he was crucified? That is the reason why. He is threatening to overdo the whole thing because the system was built upon, here's what you have to do to get right with God. Sacrifices, follow the rituals, follow the commands, you're going to get them wrong. That's why you need religious leaders who go before God, who ask for God for forgiveness, who then tell you how to live a better life. And the whole system is designed this way. Sounds a little like today, but it was significantly more so. And God or Jesus acts as if he has full access to God without any of that. A Jewish man saying and acting this way. Right. Treason. It was an act of betrayal. Okay, so this is where Paul says, this is what I understand. This is how Paul understands this theology, like this is true for us today in this second century, first, second century, third century, when his writings were being widely circulated and read. And people are saying, we're confused now. There's some confusion about this. So this is where we start off Romans chapter one, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of a gospel of Christ because it is the power of God for salvation, first for the Jew and then for whom? The non-Jew, the Gentiles. All right, so this is the gospel that Jesus has demonstrated to us this gospel, which is that we have full access to God. We are already accepted by God. We don't have to become accepted. We already are accepted by God. And now we live according to that. That's the gospel message that all of us are. That you don't have to first become a Jewish person following a system of commands and rituals to have access and favor from God nor do you have to somehow correct yourself as a Jewish person, become good enough for God's favor to finally return to you. So I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but here's the problem Paul sets out. He says, yes, we all have committed this thing called idolatry. Idolatry is what happens when we turn our resources into the source of all things is what happens when we as humans start to cling to things like people, like possessions, like prestige, right? We cling to these things. We want them. We desperately grab a hold of them because they're going to give us a sense of value, a sense of, a sense of love, of acceptance. And Paul says, this is the idolatry that has separated us, all of us, Jews and non-Jews, from God. 
And so, uh, chapter three, let's go to, okay, so that's chapter one, all the way to chapter two. The question that is there for chapter one and two is the issue that creates this separation between us and God is our idolatry. And that was true, but that's not the end of the story is that in chapter three and four, Paul says, but it isn't about doing more. It isn't about trying to justify yourself so that you're accepted by God. All right. So these Jewish people thinking that we're separated from God, we are cursed. Uh, we have to do something to get back in favor with God. And Paul says in chapter three, all the way to four, that we are justified not by trying to be accepted by God, but we are accepted already. We're justified by faith. Right? This, is, this is what it means to be, to act like Jesus, to assume that God's grace, God's favor is already there. And it has always been there. That even though there was a system of commands and rituals, that it was still always by grace, that God's grace was there. And that if we could learn to live from that, it would change our lives, right? Still, there's some questions here. There's some lack of clarity. So we have to keep working. So chapter three and four. So chapter one and two, yes, there's idolatry. We all have committed but there's this gospel, and this gospel is the power of God, and it has the power to change us. And he's going to explain what that means. But chapter three and four, people would have assumed, okay, so what do we have to do? What works do we have to do? How do I get God's favor? How do I, how do I have access to God? How do, I, how do I live so that I get past these problems, these obstacles that are in my way, right? Many of us, we have crises, we have issues, we have struggles. And so we're asking how do we get through them? Is it that we have to do something? Now then think of this. How many of you have ever said when, when you've had a streak of bad luck, bad things are happening, when that has happened to you, how many of you have said or thought, did I do something wrong? I must have done something wrong, right? This is the, that's, it's, the, it's that thinking. It's endemic in all of us. It's, it's been around for for, for thousands of years. And so that would have been the thinking. What do we have to do? What are the rules? What, how do we get back into getting into a, a streak of good luck again? And Paul says, you're justified by faith. And, uh, and that is by trusting the way of Jesus. That's what it means to be justified by faith is that I'm already accepted and I've got to behave as Christ behaved, as Jesus behaved, which was to assume that there's already this connection, that we are already favored, we're already loved, we're already accepted by God. And if we can receive that in us, it has the power to change our lives. And so when he gets into chapter five, he explains what is the way of Jesus? What is that way? Right? Well, Jesus's way is to go through the path of allowing whatever circumstances, difficulties, whatever suffering is coming his way, to allow it to have its work in him. Rather than to react and to fight and to defend, right? Think about this. Let's, 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 let's approach it this way. 
when you go through a difficulty, you can see, if you pay attention to yourself, you'll see yourself have certain reactions. And oftentimes your reactions aren't things you're proud of. And so you want to forget about them and move on. And so suffering has this, this uh, power to it to actually surface some ugliness within us. And it has the power to also teach us some things. And so if we allow the suffering to do that without automatically rejecting it, pushing it away, trying to defend ourselves. So imagine Jesus, he's accused of a lot of things. That was one of the experiences he had, accused of so many things that many of us would have wanted to argue, defend, protect ourselves from, um, avoid. Uh, but Jesus confronts it, faces it, and stands before all of that without defending or arguing or escaping. He is present to it. And as he's present to it, something presumably happens within him where that starts to go away. We talked about before about him going into the desert and suffering uh, temptation, right? His early life. And that temptation that he suffers is the temptations that we all suffer with, that we all are challenged with, but it surfaces anything that is within him and cleans, cleans it out. In fact, it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of within a number of different traditions and faiths and religions over the, over the uh, centuries uh, that there was this idea that going into the desert was the place for cleansing. And so we see this even when Israel leaves Egypt, she goes through the desert. The desert was a place of, of cleansing and of um, getting rid, surfacing and getting rid of behaviors and ways of being that uh, were self-destructive. So Jesus goes into the desert, he suffers. Jesus goes before the cross, before his accusers, he suffers. Jesus goes on to the cross and he suffers. And so without resorting to defenses and, and uh, all the ways that we have of, of dealing with our own pain, is that he allows it to do its work. And by doing so, he dies. He dies before he dies. But he knows that there's this promise of the resurrection and that once we go through the death faithfully, then what happens is this resurrection that transforms us and we become a different person. And so it isn't about trying to be accepted by following rules. It's about recognizing we are already accepted and loved so that we can face the suffering and allow the suffering to do its work in us of surfacing whatever it wants to surface in us, knowing that it's all grace. It's all grace. Even when you go through that, that you don't have to sweat it thinking, I'm a, I've got to get this right. I've got to do even suffering right. It's no, there's grace. Just understand you're already loved and accepted by God. Chapter five, you're already there. You're already accepted and loved. And now you can go through the path that Jesus went through. But then he goes on and he says, let me, let me explain to you the severity of sin, but check this out. He compares the sin right in chapter five that came through Adam and says it had this, and I'm going to use this word several times, this cascading effect that Adam sinned and sin like a disease went through all of us, right? And we know this in terms of when we see how we behave and act and then it has an impact on other people and then they act a certain way and it goes on and on and on, right? 
So if you already have a stressful day and somebody cuts you off on the road and then swears at you and, you know, or you go to the, you go to pick up your, your, your coffee at a coffee shop and, and uh, you're, you know, you, you, you have a bad experience. People are in a bad mood and say something and, um, or uh, you come home and, uh, you, you know, someone in your family or uh, some friend that you have has uh, something negative to say and it hurts you. And then what you do is then you go and you behave that way as well. I mean, it's all sorts of cascading effects to sin that we can see. And he says here, Paul says here, that's what happens. Sin goes through like a disease through Adam. But check this out. He says, that it is even more impactful when one person like Jesus does something righteous. And so when Jesus does something righteous, that is even more powerful than the disease itself. And so when we do the very thing that Jesus did, which is to assume that we are already loved and accepted, that there's nothing we have to do, that then we can open up ourselves to the process of going through the suffering that is necessary for our transformation. And that in that suffering and transformation, we don't resort to our normal ways of acting, which is almost always sin. We can die to sin and its effect. And that righteous behavior has a cascading effect on all kinds of people in our lives. But then he gets to chapter six and he says, <clears throat> just because I'm saying, that we're no longer under this Jewish religious system doesn't mean that we should go on sinning. Doesn't mean that now because of grace, we could just be like, whatever, I don't, I don't have to sweat it. Right? But he himself says, even though that's true in chapter seven, he says, the things I want to do, I don't do, right? And the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. Right? So he admits that that's the struggle that we all have. But then in chapter eight, he gives hope. He says, but there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ because now, now I'm summarizing quite a big chunk here in chapter eight, we don't have to, we are empowered now to not have to follow the impulses. And I'm gonna use the word ego, right? But he uses the word flesh there. But that's essentially what he's saying. It's, this, this, it's, our, it's our ego's way of, of defending ourselves, our personality's way of protecting itself of trying to get its needs met. So we don't have to follow those impulses anymore. We can go deeper and live from our better motivations or the spirit that is present within us. All right? Remember we talked about this last week. We always have the mixed motivations. We have Christ within us and some beautiful motivations that are there to love and to do good in this world. We also have the lesser motivations. That's also true. We have sin. That's also true, right? The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing. That's also true. But there's also a way now forward where we don't have to follow the impulses of our ego because Christ is within us. We can go deeper and live from the motivations of the spirit that is already living within us. And this is what produces new creation, this cascading effect of righteousness, this cascading effect of bringing life rather than death into the world. Are you with me? So chapter nine, this is where we get a little bit uh, complicated because people are saying the Jewish people, the, Jew, the, the Jewish and non-Jewish people that are part of this Roman church, 
we're saying, okay, but what's happened to the Jewish people? Because they don't seem to be jumping into this new thing, this new movement, this new understanding about God. Um, what is going on? And uh, Paul says, well, God chooses to harden some. God chooses to reject some and accept others. God chooses to do this. And at first that can seem like, oh, wait, what is, what is happening? Suddenly now is Paul saying that God just arbitrarily chooses, pick, picks and chooses some and rejects others. It certainly can be seen that way. And there are entire denominations that are built around that. But it could also mean that what, God, what Paul is saying here is that God intentionally makes things, okay, so this idea of hardening the heart, right? Rejecting some, hardening their hearts, is to actually make their situation worse in order for them to change. The reason why I can mean that is because theologically, that's what we see in scripture, is that God tends to make things worse for people, right? So think about Israel. When Israel is in uh, Egypt, and she is oppressed for 400 years, right? This is, this is, uh, this is right, right before Moses shows up. And she is in that oppression for hundreds of years. And finally, Moses comes, uh, guided by God, to deliver her. What does God do? Does God immediately just kind of go, okay, you're out? No, God actually makes things worse, right? Because now they have to make not only bricks for Egypt, but they have to gather their own straw. Things just get worse. Pharaoh gets even angrier and meaner. Right? Things always get worse so that we finally realize that our situation is bad, right? When the pain of our current situation is worse than the pain of change, that's when we change. We don't change because we think it's a good idea. How many of you have ever said, I think it's a good idea to just like uproot my whole entire life and change everything? None of us ever do. We do so because we have faced something tremendously difficult. And that's when we usually change our lives. Most people come to church because of crises. A lot of people leave church because of crises as well. So crises does produce change, good or bad. But Paul, I think, is saying that here, that God chooses to harden the hearts of those who have stopped the journey of faith, who have just started to get stuck. And it is, it is God's favor and God's grace to do that, to make things even harder so that we will turn, right? And then in chapter 10, he says, now here's the truth for Jews as well and for Gentiles, is that salvation is not far off. It's not something that they have to go somewhere. They have to be something special, become amazing people, do work even harder. It, it isn't in the heavens, as chapter 10 says, that you have to go find it. It isn't in the depths that you have to go dig it up. Salvation is right here, right as, as close as the breath that comes from your lungs. It is that near to you. And that is the good news for Jews and for Gentiles. Now, back to what I was saying in chapter nine, hardening the heart for the purpose of really drawing people to himself. I think that's what chapter 11 finishes off with. This is why it appears that God has, um, does this, is that he turns over, turns all people over to disobedience in chapter 11, so that he can have mercy on all. So I think that's the, the flow of this. 
He does this to have mercy on all. You don't have to do anything more than simply recognize. While you're in your hardship, while you're in your difficulty, while the difficulty is having this effect of cleansing you, of changing you, of causing you to want to change, is that salvation isn't far off. It is right here, right now. Every day is the day of salvation. And then in chapter 12, he says, what can we do? Uh, we can choose not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that is the part of what he's been saying all along, is that you can change. You can change. Salvation is near you. It's as close as the breath that comes from your lungs. It is possible for you to be changed, but you are changed by the renewing of your minds. Right? So instead of being conformed to the way the world is going about doing its thing, is that we're transformed by renewing our minds regularly. How do you renew your mind? You renew your mind by taking your attention and placing it on the things of God, by taking your attention away from a whole lot of stuff that's out there. You know, there's all sorts of distractions right now. And I'm seeing people fall into conspiracy theories. I'm seeing people fall into um, anger and hatred and bitterness and all this other stuff. And that is all a part of the uh, conforming to the world's patterns. Right? But we don't have to. We can renew our minds by pulling away from that stuff, by turning our attention to God's word, by being more in that than we have been, by paying attention to people, Right? Um, and loving people. Now here in chapter 13, 14, and 15, he teases out what it looks like not to be conformed to the world, but, be, but to be transformed. And in 13, he speaks about loving and really loving people. In 14, there's this division in the church. Those who are Jewish people, those who are believing that you still can't eat meat that is offered perhaps to idols. We don't know if it was offered to idols, but there's this issue of eating meat. Um, which oftentimes in the Roman world was offered to idols. And so people are, are debating over this, and it's not a small issue. It is an issue of, of following scripture, of being biblical. Um, but Paul says this is what it means uh, to be loving. This is what it means to be transformed. This is what it means to understand the gospel. The gospel is that all have been accepted. All have been accepted by God. And when you understand that you have been accepted by God, now you accept one another. And you accept one another becomes more of a priority than agreeing with one another. It's not agreement, it's acceptance. In fact, you can disagree, but have full acceptance. And so in chapter 16, as we talked about last week, he says, go ahead and greet all of these people in the church. And we read their names. And there are some Jewish names some Roman names, and a whole lot of Greek names. And he says, go and greet these people. Go and accept them, embrace them. Don't just simply say, we tolerate them. They can have their own church. They can have their own denomination, but actually live in community with one another. Greet each one with a holy kiss. I said last week that it means you call up the love that is within you, the grace that is within you, because right now it is difficult for us to act in love towards one another, particularly 
in this very heated, very divisive world that we live in. It is so difficult to do this. And so we will want to act out of the ego and live out of that rather than the spirit. Chapter eight, that's going to be easy and we're going to do it. There's going to be a lot of times that we do what Paul says in chapter seven, where the things we don't want to do, we do. And the things that we wish we were doing, we're not doing. That's going to happen a whole lot these days for us. Grace, no condemnation to us. We go back to the gospel. We're fully accepted by God. Now, let's fully accept other people. And let's move out of that motivation of love. We still have our debates. We still have our disagreements. We still have our conversations. But we make the priority, you are my brother, you are my sister. And I fully accept who you are. Because of this incredible thing that has taken place in Jesus, which is the acceptance that we already have. Idolatry just simply means I don't think I have enough. That's why we do what we do. That's why we fight. That's why we argue. That's why we, we think that somehow I'm not accepted. I've got, I've got to make sure that I'm right. And if I'm right and your views threaten my rightness, then I've got to, I've got to disagree with you and I've got to argue with you. And, and all of this stuff comes from the simple truth that we don't believe that we have everything right here and right now, that we are not already full of love, full of acceptance, full of grace. But somehow we have something that is missing within us. When you recognize that truth, that's the lie, the truth of the lie, that we believe this. And we can go back and always go back to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ.